Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by Spartan Combat. They're hosting two tournaments in June. If you're in New York, check out Brawl at the Falls going down Saturday, June 18th. And if you're in Alabama, check out Rocket City Rumble going down June 30th through July 2nd. Go to SpartanCombat.com to register. Now let's get to the episode. You see too many grown men walking around and they're they're unable to handle you know, I, the best they ever did was second or the best they ever did was third, whether it was the States or whether it was nationals, it doesn't matter. Everybody is who, co- whoever comes up a little short carries that with them. And my mission has been to try to get people to, to not have that hang up where they walk around and carry that baggage. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time I spent wrestling, if it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast presented by Spartan Combat. Go to SpartanCombat.com for all your wrestling merchandise needs. Folks, this episode is with the great Ernie Monaco, the founder and head coach of the Edge School of Wrestling. Coach Monaco has coached over 107 New Jersey State champions, 13 NCAA Division I champions, six World Olympic team members, and today 20 of his former wrestlers are college coaches. Staggering numbers, but the knowledge Coach Monaco drops on this interview is even better. So tune in. Before we get to the interview, Fan of the Week goes to our friend Bo Jennings, a musician a listener of this podcast, go to Bo Scott Jennings on Instagram to support our friend Bo. And without further ado, folks, let's give it up for the great Ernie Monaco. Awesome. Ernie Monaco, welcome to the podcast, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to it, be here. It is an honor. One of the, the true pioneers in the club wrestling scene. I'm based here in Chicago and I grew up with the rage of overtime. And so we're definitely going to hit on that because I know you had a big influence on Sean when Donnie brought him out there, but I want to hit on something that just really kind of piqued my interest. You spent some time studying Russians and Cubans. And one thing you notice when looking at those athletes is the movement patterns are different. And I don't know what you meant by that. So I just kind of wanted to go into how you're studying some of these youth and age group level wrestlers from other countries and what you're seeing. Uh, I think they, I've always thought this and, and I've, in, in the early years, I tried to find people whose brain I could pick or top people in the United States who were, um, who had traveled, who 
had information that I didn't have who could tell who I could, you know, hear more about their training methods and what they were doing uh, because I felt that their movement patterns were, were far different than ours. I still feel that way. Um, How do you mean? Like, what do you see that tips you off to uh, that? uh, They can wrestle. uh, They wrestle differently from more positions than we do. They're more, they're a little bit more, it's part partly because they're wrestling freestyle all the time and they're not, um, you know, making the conversion or, or switching back and forth between scholastic and freestyle. But I think, um, for example, like the, they're more limber, they're, they're back arches, they can throw, uh, they can do things that are more gymnastics, uh, gymnastic-like. And that ability, there are a few guys like that that we'll have in the United States. Um, and those guys that we have are typically just um, gifted individuals who can do you know, a standing backflip or do different gymnastic type movements, but their guys across the board, they're cranking out kids that um, can perform those type of skills at a young age. And our youth can't do those things. And I think it, 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 um, you see that in when we get older, um, when you're training a, a kid that's come to, let's say a U.S. program, um, and you try to train them to do some of the things that some of the European guys are doing. Um, we have we have difficulty with some of the the muscle patterns and some of the movement patterns because we're not we they weren't formed when they were young, you know. The, the neurologically they weren't formed, and in, in many ways they weren't formed when they were young. And the same thing is true with certain skill sets um, that we'll teach our wrestlers. I think certain things are just much easier if if they're embedded in the kids when they're at a young age versus learning them when they get older. It doesn't mean they can't learn them when they're older, but it's, it takes a lot more work, you know? So if you look, I look like most people will look to, um, would look to how, uh, to the open level or the Olympic level athletes that you see overseas and, and try to learn and study from, from things that they're doing. And I, I do that as well, but I think there's a tremendous amount to be gained by looking at the youth wrestlers, not, not, uh, necessarily the wrestlers competing but if you can find footage and and there is stuff available of coaches top level coaches working with their younger kids um, breaking things down it shows um, where some of the emphasis is and even things that are as simple as let's say the way they they warm up the way they approach the beginning of practice it's much more it's much different than the way we would approach practice now over the years I think our practices have um, I don't know that it's fair to say that they moved in that direction, but they, but they've become more similar and the line has become more blurred and there's not as big of a difference. So I think now a days in the United States, you'll see a lot of the same type of things that are people are doing around the world. We're doing, there's a commonality. Uh, if you watch it, let's say Japanese warm up, you watch the Russians warm up. Um, you watch our, the top Americans warm up. They're going to, the warm up is going to be very similar. But I think at the youth levels, what's going on in our rec programs and what's going on across the country is far different than what's going on uh, in in the way that they approach it is different than the way that we approach it. And that there's a little bit more um, uh, a progression of gymnastics that's built into their training when they're young so that when they get to a certain age, they already have the physical skill set to do to execute certain techniques. What are some... We what don't approach some, it that way. Sorry to interrupt you, Coach. Right. What were some skills that you think these young wrestlers would have 
that maybe not every youth wrestler in the U.S. would have, but that's consistent across the board over there? Uh, they stress different things than we stress. So you'll see them all do carries. You'll see them all able to do a back arch. You'll see them all able to, to do, you know, rotate on their, do neck bridges and rotate around their body, around their head. And they can do the same thing on their arms. They can walk upside down on their hands backwards. They can go upside down backwards on their hands as fast as our kids can run forward. <laughs> um, and if I, if I give that to American kids to like to try to run, you know, travel across the mat, 42 feet upside down, um, you know, in a bridge on their hands out of a class of, uh, let's say I had 30 kids in practice, three, two or three may be able to make it even at the high school level, two or three are able to make it, but their kids, it's almost like a, in order to continue along and get to the next level, they all can do those things. So they, they, they start when they're young and they, they build those things into them. And I think it pays dividends. Some of those gymnastic type, uh, the, that gymnastic type approach pays dividends, I think, in the long run, you know, and, and when they go to ask them to do certain techniques, they have the ability to do it. And what do you think the progression of skills they're teaching is? Um, I, I don't know that it's a progression of skills. I think that they have the, I think you can't, uh, I think in the United States, like sometimes, um, you know, like there's people in Russia who go to school, who they, they, they get a degree in coaching, you know, their degrees in coaching and, and it, and I don't know a lot about it, but it could be specialized. I'm sure in wrestling. So they, so when they teach something the the kids inevitably will have the musculature to do the, whatever the technique is. Whereas sometimes like if an example would be art, like young kids inevitably can't, they, they have trouble doing things overhead. Their, their skeletal system and their body is not strong enough to do something over, you know, overhead. So if you, if you reverse it and as a test, if you put a kid against the wall and say, do a headstand and kick your feet up against the wall and lean against the wall on your head, the kid, and then you ask him to put his hands on the mat and try to push himself up. He can't lift his own body weight. It's, it's much too difficult for a young kid to push their body weight up and, 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 you know, and go to a handstand from a headstand um, because he's got to lift up whatever he weighs, 85 pounds or whatever they weigh as, as a, as a youth. So um, that's something that comes with time. But the point is that certain skill sets there's a readiness factor in, in when you teach, when you're teaching something, there's a readiness factor that some things shouldn't be taught, um, you know, before, let's say other things. And there's a progression in which they go about teaching. I don't know what the progression is. I know when they teach the gymnastic type of, uh, activities, warm-up activities to their athletes, mm -hmm. they, they go through a progression. So example would be if, if you were going to do a front handspring, and spring off your hands and land on your feet and or do consecutive front handsprings before they get to a front handspring they're doing a dive roll then they're doing a head spring then they do a handspring and they go through a series of uh, even going backwards they'll they'll back bridge over a partner and then they'll do a walkover eventually that becomes a back handspring eventually that becomes a back tuck where they're able to do a, a round off to a back a back tuck in the air or a back handspring and their hands don't hit the mat or their hands will hit the mat, but they, they progressively work their way up. Whereas ours, at least to my knowledge, I don't think our st staff our our coaches, you know, our dads and people who wrestled who are coaching the recs in the United States and people who are volunteering and coaching um, have gone through any kind of formal training like that. I know, I, you know, I, I have a little bit of a gymnastics background. So 
I, I was lucky that I have some, some knowledge in that area, but most people I don't think have that. So if you don't have that and you're not a coach and you don't, and you don't understand that, um, you know, it, it's difficult to say, you could say to a kid, okay, we're going to run and do a backflip. And you watch kids in an American wrestling practice run and then do a, a round off and then try to do a backflip. You got three kids in the room that can do it just innately because they're just gifted. And then the rest of the kids can't do it and they'll try, mm-hmm. but there's, they're not going to take the time out of practice to go through a two month progression or one month progression and leading up to how to, how to be, how we can do a backflip. Eventually the kid will keep trying and failing, trying and failing. And eventually either he gives up or he'll, he'll keep making progress and eventually make it. But they, they actually will go through a series of steps to lead up until the point where that heavier, you know, chubbier kid or the kid who's less has less pop or less athletic and can do some of those things. And I think in the end it, you know, the guys that remain standing at the end, they all seem to have that same type of ability, you know, that same type of, um, um, you know, athleticism, the flexibility across the board, they, they have a lot of similar attributes. So when you see someone like Yanni wrestle in the United, in the United States, he's a little different than, than most of our standard U S guys. You know, he has some different attributes. Um, some of, you know, he's more flexible. Maybe he, he can, he moves in a little different way, but I think he's similar to the way that you see some of them move, mm-hmm. you know, and that that's what I pick up on. It's just that, you know, I know from working with kids over years, you can't, you're asking them to try to do something, things, certain things that you're just physically unable to do. And it, it's just, it's not, um, it's, it, it's a physical thing that they can learn to do, but they need to be taught like other things way back in the beginning in order to get to that point. Yeah. And whenever I think about things that, uh, you know, the Russians are doing or, or anyone overseas, I think of Andy Rovat who spent a year over there and he talks about, you know, the concept of like general prepared readiness, like before right. they get into like certain low singles or wh- whatever type of technique, they can all do certain things. And uh, whereas here you might see, a coach trying to get a kid to, to get off his belly when he can't even do a push-up. So how can you do it with someone else on their back? Right. 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 So, yeah. And I agree. I, I he, he was out at my place years ago and I, he was one of the guys that I was picking his brain about um, to try to, because I knew he had been there and spent time there and I was, I couldn't wait to sort of ask him and see what he said, but he, he didn't have any, and I don't know that I summed it up well at all, but I, he didn't have any, um, clear-cut answers if you said to him what are the if i you know if i asked him point blank what are they doing that's different than what we're doing he's going to say they don't do a lot that's really much different we do the same type of things but i'll give you a little example like they'll sit there and grab their ankle and they'll rotate their ankle around and they'll rotate the other foot and if you watch them they'll go through like sergey you know at michigan bella gossip will go through a you know a 45 minute warm-up that's much different than if it's led by one of them it's going to be much different than if it's led now people steal stuff, take stuff. Everybody's doing different things. So they pick up, pick up things from that they see, but in general, there's little pieces of it. Little, little, um, I don't know. You'd call them drills. They're warm up drills, mm-hmm. but they're done with a, a, a great sense of purpose. There's they're specific to certain skill sets that they do. So if you look at it, it ties and it connects to something that they're going to do. It's not just random. It's, 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 everything is very well thought out. So if they're going across the mat and as they're uh, doing drop steps or they're doing like sort of running on their knees across the mat and they're moving their hands in coordination with their feet, 
it's it's done deliberately to simulate like doing a, a carries the way that they would do let's say a fireman's carry um so that you know there's it it's just a you know there are differences you know whether one's better or worse i don't know but there there are definitely differences between the, the way that they approach warming up and and the whole process even with the bands you know like you, we think of the bands as like a cardio exercise but if you watch um some of the bulgarians do it it's all fireman's carries it's all arm right. spins right and it's all tied back to a it's purpose it's not just a right. random cardio thing right exactly and that's what I'm, that's the way their warm-up tends to be um and it, then so if you sort of reverse engineer the the warm-up and then you go back and as an american you try to look at say okay they're doing this what skill is this what does this tie to inevitably you can make some of the connections and you can see where this comes uh surfaces in some of the different ways that they teach things you know there, there's a difference in the, even the way a simple double leg is taught a simple single leg is taught there are differences between the way that they would teach it and the way that we would teach it our coach our top coaches will talk about those concepts but they don't always necessarily teach it the same way but and it's and it's only our elite guys you know who are uh who have you know been around at the highest levels who will conceptually teach those things that to the average person they see it they're not picking up on the difference between um you know what does it mean to bring your body to the body and close the and, and close the gap between your body and the other man's body and it's, as opposed to just shooting and grabbing somebody's leg and the the emphasis on those points and bringing your body to the body as an example is, is something that's um very significant but but subtle to the eye mm -hmm. you know so 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 a lower level like a, a coach in the United States who's not paying attention to those little details, when he sees he, when he sees it, he he may he may see it as the same double leg, you know, or that um, Jordan Burroughs does, or or somebody else does, and there are subtle differences between between them, you know, and and I mean, every, all the skills are different, but they're but that's my point is that there's there's a com there's they have a system. So when you look at their wrestlers, there's a commonality between the guys that are coming out of those countries. There's, they wrestle a similar style, just as they would say that probably we wrestle a similar style. But I think our, our world team and our members of our teams tend to be more individuals. And they, we have, although there may be similarities to the way we, we wrestle and that it's not the way that they wrestle, um, maybe there's more differences we have more differences than we have similarities i, I don't know yeah you know? I, there's the look at the yeah the collection of guys is very different and you know, we have a much bigger pool to draw from if you you know russia's huge but really it's just like chechnya dagestan and basically like states this like three states the size of indiana like right. that's their drawing pool you know right. or pool to draw from so you know, yeah, we've done tremendous job gain, you know, making gains, but really it's, you know, we still have way more numbers than they do. And so they're, what you're saying is that their system allows for greater consistency and depth. Yeah, what they is, stamp them out. Exactly. How would you describe kind of your process and system of wrestling? Uh, I, I think in my, my process, my process, my approach to things is to try to, um, to start from, uh, from the fundamental part, from the foundation. And I hang everything off of that. So I, if I, I always say like a, an example would be if you can't control, like 
collegiate style wrestling, scholastic style wrestling, you get awarded points for your ability to control your opponent, right? So for I would say that to like a parent. Um, so your your son is or daughter is going out there and they're trying to control their opponent and and score points. They get rewarded points if they can take them down, they hold them down, they control them. If you get free of control, you get a point, right? If you reverse control, but a lot of it has to do with controlling things. So you're trying to move somebody around and get them to do what you want to do. When many of the kids at a young age, they can't even control their own body well. They can't control their own body movement and make their body do what they want it to do and let alone control somebody else. So I, I think when, like for me, you know, as I've gotten older, it starts with number one, trying to build that base, um, the base, like all purpose sort of skill, um, body control, right? Gymnastic mm -hmm. type approach. I, I put it this way. I think, I think that if you asked a fighter, an MMA fighter, where to start with, if you wanted to build a fighter from the ground floor up and you said, where do you, where are you going to start? Most fighters would say you start with wrestling as your fundamental foundation core basis. Mm -hmm. And then you need to know how to strike and, you know, kick and punch and you need to know submission holes and other things. But I would say most people, at least from what I've been told and heard, would say start with wrestling as the fundamental core. I think gymnastics as a sport, gymnastics, not in the sense that we need to be doing tricks on apparatus and things like that, but gymnastics in the sense of tumbling and athletic ability is a good fundamental place to start with a young kid to build a foundation in wrestling. So um, I just recently heard that uh, Reese Humphreys out in, in, in Jersey, you know, he works at the RTC and he, he they said he got a son doing a lot of gymnastics. And I, and I, when I heard it, I smiled and I, I said to myself, well, it makes total sense. You know, his dad was a, a, a high, very high level, you know, international coach coaching at Fox Cutcher and, and successful in his own right. And they're very knowledgeable people. So that, so it would make sense to me that that his son is a young kid and he's going to embed in him a gymnastics background. And then once he has that background, he has the ability to just disguise the limit on where he can go, what he can do, because he he's now developed all these like neural pathways and, and kinesthetic ability that that not a lot of kids have. And he's developed it at an early age and they stay with him through life. So when they move, they move in a, in a way that's a little bit different than the standard kid who hasn't had that background or that training. And uh, from, from my point of view, like, you know, kids who have that ability, they're able to, they're able to respond and do a little bit more when you ask them to do it, just because they have a little bit more innate ability from that background that they would have. So when I start, I'm starting with the, the basic fundamentals skills and I'm worried about the gross movements, not the little minor details. And then each year as they get older, we, they're, we tighten their game and their game gets tighter and tighter and tighter until eventually, um, you know, they're doing things at a very high level, but it's a, it's a circle. It's a process of looping around and coming back around the under the, the, a, a kid's a child's understanding of a double leg at six years old is going to be different at eight years old. It's going to be different at 10 years old. It's going to be different at 12 years old. It's going to be much different at 14 years old. So each time they, they revisit it, they have a little higher level of understanding. They also have a little bit higher level of ability and their double leg in turn gets a little bit better, better and tighter and tighter until they can eventually execute it at a very high level. But it's a, it's a process that takes, that comes over time. They're not something that, you're going to take an eight-year-old and then all of a sudden he's going to be able to do, you know, Jordan Burroughs double and, and, and look like 
Burrow's doing it. It's, you know, it's the rare kid that 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 walks in your door that can do that. They they, they do exist, but <laughs> they don't come around too often. You know. So when you think about organizing your curriculum, it's a core set of skills. And as you mentioned, each year you go around it, you hang a little bit more meat on the bone. Yes. And so that by the time they're senior, they have 10 levels of knowledge on the double leg, as opposed to you do it once in middle school and you know, that's it. Right. So I, yeah, exactly. I try to, right. We keep on revisiting it over and over and over. And I liken it to the fact that I would say to them, if you go to a major league baseball game and you watch the baseball players in the beginning of practice, they're going to take infield practice. They're going to take batting practice. If you go watch our world team practice, uh, they're going to shoot double legs and they're going to do arm drags and they're going to shoot single legs and they're going to do front headlocks and, and they're going to practice all the same skills that the youth kids practice. They're just doing it at a much different level, um, but they're doing the same, the same skill set. So, it, you know, they're, you know, baseball players are started out as little leaguers and they started out fielding ground balls and throwing the ball to first base and taking batting practice. And the guys in the major leagues are still doing the same things. And um, our world team guys are doing stance and motion drills and footwork drills and, they're still doing all the same thing. So it's just, but their understanding and their, and the execution of it is just at a much higher level, you know? And what are some, what are some skills that you think are, should be a core, a core skill. And like, I'm talking like specific wrestling techniques that maybe get overlooked in America a lot, whether it is like, like a fireman's carry is one I see our top guys hitting like a Spencer Lee. And if you watch those old Sergey tapes, he's hitting that a lot. And a lot mm -hmm. of those guys hit it, but maybe that's not as common as, as it should be. Does anything come to mind like that? Uh, a, a core skill, like one specific thing. Yeah. I think, uh, well, I used to, you know, if they used to keep, I used to hear stats on like, let's say a single leg was the most effective takedown in the world. Let's say in the Olympic games, if they kept statistics on what, what technique scored the most points, you know, what takedown scored the most points and it would be a single leg. Um, I would think that information like that sometimes is valuable because it's showing that, um, you know, it's showing you things that are effective that work at the highest level at which you're trying to be, you know, so it, the same thing. And sometimes the rules will affect those things, like whether, whether you're on top of your, your choice to whether you want to spend your time perfecting a gut wrench or whether you want to spend your time perfecting an ankle lace. I think sometimes the rules that are in place dictate sometimes your priorities, but I think, I think for the most part in, in the United States, I think we don't pay enough attention to me, me personally. I think we don't pay enough attention to, to footwork, just to basic solid footwork and, and the coordinate coordination of your hands and your feet together. So there are kids who innately have tremendous feet. They're just blessed and born with good feet. And, and there are other kids that have a lot of abilities, but they don't, they just don't have, they got two left feet and the footwork comes a little bit more. It's a little bit more challenging for them. And I think that, um, at the highest level, that's where you, you know, that that's a really, really big factor. It's something that we take for granted, but it's something that I think pays huge dividends uh, because everything else stem, everything stems from your stance and everything stems from, from, you know, from the connection, but make being able to make the connection between your hands and your feet. And that's not that easy to do. Um, and I think if you develop that when you're younger, I think, um, you know, I think that that's that's where you're going to make the you're going to be more proficient at it if you started that at an early age than if you try to pick that up when you get older. I could tell you a, like a funny story. Um, Please, my memory is I'm trying to think of who we came to. Well, John John Smith had come out to uh, 
to to the edge to recruit somebody and trying to think of who he was recruiting. And I don't think it was Glenn, but I've had a number of guys over the years that he recruited, but he was there to recruit somebody. And I had a, a kid's class going on at the time. So I, he was there with his brother and Pat was there and they had both come out and they were getting a workout in before the, uh, they wanted to get a workout in before the high school guys came in and they watched the high school guys. But I had a kid's class going on before the high school class. So they, they, uh, they were working out on the side and the kids, I was running the kids through practice and they were doing their thing. And then I, I said to myself, you know, it's, it's more valuable for them to sit and watch, uh, John and Pat go through their drills and do things at the time John was trying to help Pat to make a team and uh and and drill and watch them practice and see how they practice and use that as a model then it would be for me to run practice it was a treat that they were there so what so I sat my guys against the wall and they were watching uh them practice and um and John was extremely hard on his brother and he made him and I'm I'm big on drilling and big on repetition but I mean, he made him drill the same things over and over and over and over and over to the point where even I was saying to myself, holy cow, this is like, talk about next level. I mean, he was, it was unbelievable the amount really? of times that he made him practice it. Yeah. And this is, these are two men, you know, he, they, he wasn't a kid. Um, so at the end he had, he had asked, he, he wanted to roll around with some of my little guys. So I, I selected uh, from the group of kids and these kids, you got to realize they're, let's say, 12 and under maybe 13 and under 12 and under so i i call zach espo out and uh he he comes out to wrestle with john and he starts fooling around with them and and doing things with them and um i think i also called i had Corey cooperman was in that group of kids as well I, it was i had a tremendous group of kids and so he just sparred with them a little bit he was rolling around they were having fun the other kids were watching and admiring that he had the opportunity to do that and then at the end, John said to me, you know, this kid, he's got tremendous, uh, he got tremendous hands and feet. You know, he, his, his hands and feet are really well coordinated for a kid his age. He says, you know, he, he moves really, really well. And at that time, as, as I was younger and I understood what he was saying, but I didn't place the same emphasis on it or realize um, the value in it that I would place on it now, you know, mm. and it ended up being later on years, you know, five years later, Zach ended up going to Oklahoma state and then he ended up staying there and becoming an you know, assistant coach and he, and he lives out there now. Um, but, um, you know, he, it, I remember that comment very well and, and that, and his, and him talking to me and discussing about the connection between the hands and the feet and moving and how that's something that's, that uh, a lot of kids struggle with and it's difficult for them to master. So I like for me, those are things that I try to embed in kids at an early age, like that give them the back, like the, in a sense, the neurological background, the footwork, the hands, the feet, and the gymnastic of those abilities. And then the rest of the house sort of comes up once you have those fundamental things in place. I wouldn't say that I focus specifically on any one um, technique, you know, as far as, um, as far as a, a, one move, like a double leg or a single leg or a, a headlock or a fireman's carry. Um, I do, I do know that, um, you know, that I, I know that I think there is a progression to what the Russians do and the way that they approach it. And I don't want to say something that's wrong and, and mm -hmm. get it wrong, but I know that they do, they have selected certain things. And someone was telling me uh, um, that it has to do with the size of there, there's, their strength in certain 
areas are deficient as young kids, so they can't handle certain skill sets. So some of the skill sets that they select to teach the younger kids are things that their bodies are more suitable for at that age. And then later on, they build on that and, and, and work their way up. But like I said, it comes from, uh, it's, there's a thought process that's behind it. It's not just randomly um, done, you know? Yeah. It's not the, uh, the flavor of the week. So, and when you think about, so I'm thinking if Pat was competing, it was probably like 95, 96, 97, somewhere in there. And so that would have been 10 years into your run. And so you're starting to hit your full stride and, you know, talk about like when you were at like the deepest your room's ever been, what were some of the guys in there and what, when was this? Uh, it was, they were probably young at that time, but they were in there. The guys that I had in the room at one time, as an example, uh, a group of four would have been Corey. Uh, Corey was around at the same time. Zach Espo, Corey, Matt Valenti, Joe Dubuque, Zach Tanelli was younger, but all at the same time in one room. So they, we would have those five guys going at it. Um, Frank Molinero, when he was a kid, was in there. Um, Darian Caldwell, uh, Mike Gray. Um, during that era, those are some of the guys I had. Uh, what happened was a, a, a bunch of those guys, uh, Kurt Backus, um, Steve Mako, um, some names you may not know, John Diachi, Jody Jurisic. What ended up happening was in New Jersey, um, a lot of these coaches that the parents that were sending their kids to me were not always happy with um, the choices that they, you know, about where they were going to send their kid to high school. So they were looking for alternatives. And um, I was good friends with Jeff Buxton. And um, I ended up sending, you know, a lot of my guys that I had in my stable to Blair. And um, that, in a sense, helped to jumpstart that program with a lot of, he, you know, he got an infusion of a lot of really good kids. Um, and that was tough for me uh, because I had spent years and years with those younger guys, um, grooming them and getting them ready to compete in high school. And then, um, then some of them, you know, you don't, you don't see them as much. You don't see them through when they're wrestling for his program. Right. Right. Wow. So that's a, that's a ton of kids. And when you think about kids who came in and were like geared, like middle school wrestlers who just absolutely put the shutter on people. Um, how was like a, was it like a Frank Molinaire or was it like a Donnie Pritzloff who was just legendary from the middle school age on and carried it all the way through? Like who, who's someone that comes to mind there? Um, well, I think they all exhibited the, 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 the kids who are, uh, who are highly successful. They all exhibit a lot of um, those characteristics and traits at a young age. You can see that they stand out, um, you know, and, and it, it's, it's, you know, it's somewhat obvious that they're going to be successful no matter what they do, they're going to be successful their success is it becomes a matter of degrees. It's not a matter of whether they're going to be, uh, you know, have success. It's a matter of how successful they'll be and the kind of background that they develop and the skill sets that they develop. But they have, most of them have this innate ability, you know, innate ability that makes them stand out. So someone like, like Frank, let's say Molinero as an example, was extremely, even like the Joe Dubuque, you know, Frank, they all, they're all, you know, they had extreme, they were very, very athletic and mentally they're, they're just cut from a little different cloth in the sense that they're um, 
They're just very, very tough, you know, individuals. And they're, and they're going to do what it takes to get the job done. And they're wired a little in a little different way. So you, you see that, um, you know, Donnie was that way. His cousin Glenn was that way. Zach Danelli was that way. Most of those guys um, don't need a lot of work in that regard. And from the mental side, they, they come with that kind of disposition that leads them to be success on a path where they're going to be successful. There are those kids who struggle with it and then they're on the fence and they can, and they can go either way. And then they need your help to sort of nudge them one way, you know, to the positive side where they're going to have success. But, you know, I have had kids that were, that, that it didn't, they just weren't, you know, born a predator and they, and they needed a little push to, to be, um, to just, you know, understand how good they really were or the ability that they really had, you know, some of them, some of them, some of them didn't uh, have that same level of confidence. I think, you know, it had to be developed more nurtured a little bit more. And those are the ones where the, you know, the great coaches staying out because any, you know, not anyone, but a lot of, a lot of really good coaches could take, you know, a, uh, like a Joe Williams is coming to mind for me, just, you know, who had the raw skill, but um, you know, if you work with the kid where you, you see the potential, he doesn't see it. What are some things you're doing for kids who maybe say they have a problem with, with nerves for a big meet or, or they get kind of psyched themselves up. Do you have any processes or rituals for that? Yeah, I, I think, um, I think for me, um, it's a long journey. I'm one of the few people around probably that has the, um, luxury and the opportunity to coach a kid from maybe let's say age six to 19, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Not many people stay with the kid for that long. And the kids that I'm with when I'm in a situation like that, I'm with them all year round um, for years and years and years. So um, I don't have them captive. Like if they, if they're at Blair or they go to a boarding school, they live across the street from the gym, you know, they're there 24, seven, seven days a week. They can train, they have access to the gym and everything else, but they're there for a four year span. I have the kids, you know, several times a week, but I have them over, I can have them over 10 years or, or more. So um, the approach I think is a little different when you're, when you're in it for the long haul versus when you're in it for a, a shorter window. Um, so when I do it, I try to basically build it from the ground floor up and, it, and teach the kids processes. And they have to understand that there's getting, becoming good is there's a process to becoming good. There's a process to, to learning how to, warm up and prepare for a match there's a process to learning how to lose and how to digest or how to handle um, losing a match and there's a process in how to train and how to go about working out and all all of the different whether and cutting weight so all of the different processes that go into um, making up a complete wrestler are things that you try to teach the kids at the time when it's needed and when they're ready um, you know, it, it's different levels depending on the age of the kid, but they, but those are all the things that you try to teach them so that they understand that it's an, it's a loop. It's an ongoing thing. It's not something, in other words, like when the, if, for, if the kid's in eighth grade and he doesn't win the kid states, you know, where are we, you know, it, where we are, is just simply a snapshot in time. It's a picture of where we are in relation to the other people who we may be competing against and, and what do we need to do to get to where we want to go? It's not important to me that they win the kids' states in eighth grade or not. Um, I have had kids like 
Um, Shane Griffith, you know, wins the kid states nine times, you know, and he goes no, and he, was he? Yeah, I think he was nine. Oh, I don't my know that. God. I think I think Mike Gray was like maybe eight. I don't know if he was Mike was nine also, but Mike was a lot, and I know Shane was a lot. I think Shane was like nine. I, Shane would win every year, whether he w- when he was on the bottom of his age group or on the top of his age group. And for most kids, when they're young, the year that they're down, they don't they could right. run into somebody who's really tough, and they may not win. But Shane. Shane is, uh, you know, extremely gifted and, and he's a, he's a winner. He's a, finds a way to win. And, um, you know, he's always had that innate ability from when he was young, but that's the exception to the rule. I've had other guys that don't end up, you know, placing in the kid States and they go on and have tremendous careers. So it's not indicative of sort of what, of what their trajectory is or where they're going to end up. But I think, I think it's an indic. it's sort of, it's just, a, it's a, it's like running track or, or swimming in a race you know, that's multiple laps and they give you splits and you know what your time is at a certain lap. So mm-hmm. for me, from a developmental standpoint, I know if I have a kid at a certain point of, of development at age eight, you know, if he, is he where I want him to be? Is he where he needs to be at age 12? Is he where he needs to be at age 14? And then is he where he needs to be ready to, to go into college? So it's a, it's a race against the clock to try to, it's, it, to hit those, those milestones, those markers, just like a parent would do with the baby, say he's, you know, he's able to turn from his back to his belly. He's able to crawl. He's able to walk. He's able to run. And he's able to say one word, two words and string together a sentence. It's no different uh, with wrestling. Like they are able to do certain things developmentally and, and there's a progression to it. And you see, you know, I've been in it a long time. So you see them hitting those milestones and you know that, okay, this kid is on track to do, big things he's he's um he's a one percenter you know he's he's not he's just not your standard kid and then other kids would would be more and more typical of what you know what's average you know well i like how you think about it as a continuous loop and i just i've never really heard someone talk about it like that but it's like a tree and you know the tree rings are like each successive year of going through right your curriculum okay right. wow. i think of it i think of it as like a like a um like a bullseye almost like, like a, but like a spiral that works inward and it's going to get very tight at the, at the, you know, at the end of the game, they're going to, I try to have them, I want them wrestling in high school. Like they're in college. I want them trying to wrestle like in college, like they're like trying to make an Olympic team. So it, it's not always possible, but the, but the goal is to have them ahead. You know, if they're going to be amongst the best kids, the best kids in the country in high school are prepared to wrestle in college, the best kids in, in college, um, you know, the elite college wrestlers are prepared to wrestle at the next level. They may not have tremendous success, but they're ready for that level. They're a little ahead of pace. So your your top kids like your Donnie Pritzloffs and your, you know, the Zach Espos and the Glenn Pritzloffs and the you know, Zach Tanelli's and the Dave Espos and all these guys, they 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 show signs of being ahead of, you know, in the top, you know, two percent, three percent of the kids that are in the country. And it, but it doesn't matter, you know, to, whether or not they win Fargo or whether or not they win the high school states is 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 not the the measure of their career. You know, it's not the end of it's a, it's part of the process. So the, I use the kid like every tournament is the same thing, whereas most parents and people get caught up on the victories and they focus on the wins. I don't I don't I'm not concerned about the wins. Uh, I'll give you a good example would be. Um, one of the one of the guys that I was fortunate to coach 
His name is Brendan Ard. His father played for the New York Giants and and um, won a Super Bowl uh, on the off as an offensive lineman for Phil Sims. So he, you know, I would love to talk to him about football, and he would love to talk to me about wrestling. <laughs> and and we made a deal because neither one of us I didn't want to talk about wrestling, and he didn't want to talk about football. But we made a deal that we each talk to each other about the other if we if we if he would share stories and I would then do the same with him so he I, he would say to me I would ask him about the processes and I was always intrigued by coaches and how and it doesn't matter what the sport is I was always trying to learn from coaches and and coaches approach and philosophies and how they approach things so one of the things they do in the NFL is after a game they they grade each player and he would tell me that his world existed in this box that was I don't know if he said four by four or eight by eight but a little box of space that he has an offensive lineman and and he was responsible for everything that occurred in that space and at the end of the game he you know the next day or whatever they would review films and he would get graded he would get a grade on his performance for for the game and wow. I use that as an example to my athletes and say to myself I'm, I'm going to grade them on their performance I'm going to grade you on your performance for your match I'm not going to you could win the football game and lose the football game but the player who's the, the guy who I'm referring to or he as an offensive lineman, he was not being graded on whether his team won or lost the game. His job depended on his ability to perform that job and execute and do what he needed to do. So as an offensive lineman, he was graded on his performance for that game. And the, the team score was irrelevant to his grade. And I approach it the same way with my athletes. This sort they're not that to say that the winning is not relevant, but I, I grade, I'm looking at the athlete and I'm trying to teach them that what matters to me is their performance, not whether they won. All right. And the wins will rack up and they'll come if we focus on execution and their performance. So I, one of the big things that you try to instill in a kid at a young age is that it's not, we're not going out there and, and chasing W's. I, I want to take the monkey off their back and, and not have them feel the pressure that they have to win. Um, they don't have a responsibility to win the match but they do have a responsibility to me to, to uh, wrestle the best that they can and perform and execute and do the things that we've been working on. And that has worked for me in that it, 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 if, I, if the kids buy into that and they believe in you and what you're saying, you know, then they feel like, okay, all I got to do to be successful here is to go out there and, and compete to the best that I can and perform and, in a sense, wrestle for the film, right? Know, know that I'm going to get graded on my performance afterwards. And if I do all the right things, I make the right decisions and I do the right things, um, whatever the outcome of the match is, it'll be fine because I know that um, I'm not responsible for that. I'm, I'm responsible for this. So I kind of shift their focus to uh, from winning and, and focus on what if, you know, what if I lose or what if something goes wrong or whatever and staying in the moment and then sort of grade and then we, we, when we review the film and we look at it we, you know I'm, I'm grading them on what had they responded to what took place and what went on and and each and every moment of the match one moment at a time until you get to the end i don't need sound and i don't need uh the volume and i don't need to hear the crowd or um those other things that are irrelevant it, i need to focus on the, the athlete's performance and is he doing the right things you know but on that on that note um i get into it at a, at a at, you know, at a deeper level to, to, to try to teach them how to think and how to problem solve when they're in matches and reflect back on what took place and ask them, what were you thinking here? You know, why did you decide to do this versus do that? Um, and all of those things, because part of what, see, I, I think part of what people take for granted is 
I think I think people take a lot of things for granted sometimes and they'll, they'll have kids practice. In other words, they'll have someone practice and they don't know how to practice or they'll have them wrestle and they don't know how to wrestle. So they're not going to benefit. You don't necessarily always learn how to wrestle. You learn you learn how to wrestle by wrestling. But if you don't no one's there to teach you and you just keep making the same mistakes and you can learn be, vicariously because you get put on your back and you get pinned and you made a mistake. And it didn't work. And then you're going to eventually figure out if I turn this way, it's better than turning that way. But that process takes forever. You know, it's a little bit easier when someone when you can learn from other people's mistakes, when somebody's there to guide you and take you through it, you can speed up that learning process and, and it, it moves along a little faster. But I think a lot of times people um, assume that kids know how to think. They know how to think in a match. They know how to they, they they're going to be able to work themselves through a given situation they're going to ask the right questions and and empower themselves to come up with the right answers. And that's not not the case. You know, it's not necessarily the case. I think if you look at um, an example of this would be if you look at Ivy League wrestlers and and you talk to Ivy League coaches, you know, um, and I haven't had this, I ha I've had this discussion a little bit, but not not at length. Right. Um, but Zach Tanelli and Mike Gray are two guys that I coach that are both coaching the Ivies, right? And Joe Dubuque's at, at Princeton. But if you had this conversation, the athlete, the Ivy League athlete is a it's a little different mindset than than the Iowa athlete, than the Oklahoma State athlete. They're 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 more analytical in how they look at things and they're different in how they learn. So I think you have to, as a coach, you have to look at each in each individual athlete and understand that. You know, the the gifted one percent kid doesn't necessarily learn the same way that this other individual does who may he may just be wired in a different way. So that as a coach, the puzzle becomes for you, the challenge for you to solve is how do you reach this kid who doesn't learn kinesthetically, doesn't learn vicariously, doesn't learn. He learns out of a book. He learns in a more analytical way. He thinks in a more analytical way. So I think for those coaches who are dealing with like student athletes like that, that's a different athlete that you're working with. It's a different population that you're working with than working with uh, the, you know, the more typical, let's say, you know, guy who may be at like Penn State or at Iowa or Oklahoma State or Iowa State or mm -hmm. one of those big schools, you know, Wisconsin or somewhere like that. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist everywhere. It exists everywhere. But I think the, there's a greater population trying to coach those athletes is different than coaching the other athletes. I love you know? how you think about or how you show them um, why you're doing it or you're asking them during a match, why are they making this decision or that? I don't think most people have that kind of thought or critical thought into like what's going on in a match. And it, it shows why you're coaching sure you have so many D1 coaches and you hit on one of my you know, two of my favorites, Zach Tonelli and, and Mike Gray. And, you know, Mike Gray, I've spent some time with last year. And, man, what a fantastic guy. And the way he thinks about coaching, all of his guys say it's very meticulous and planned out. It seems like a lot of that's from you and, and kind of how your process of showing why you're doing things versus just telling them to do it. Right. Well, I think as an ex – yeah, I, uh, for sure. I, I think a, a good example with Mike, and I don't know that this carries over to coaching, but uh, I, it, it does on, from my point of view. He's a four-time New Jersey state champ, the first four-time New Jersey state champion. And and when he was in ninth grade and he won his first state title, I was with him, you know, throughout the state tournament. And 
making sure he was where he needed to be as far as mentally ready, warmed up and ready to go and go out and compete and, and do the thing. Fast forward, you know, four years later, three years later, he's a senior and he's win he's trying to win his fourth um, state title. First guy ever in the history of New Jersey. News media following him around 24 seven. Uh, chronicling what he, his day and what he does and how he, what he's eating and how he's training and everything that goes into it as he's going to create history. And I, I liken it to like Kale Sanderson and doing the same thing. And anyone who's been in that situation, the pressure is much different when you're trying to win your fourth NCAA title, you know, your fourth state title versus trying to win your first state title. And the way that you manage the athlete uh, and the way that the athlete sees things is different from the first time because now it, it's a different pressure. It's an altogether totally different circumstance. So I think each situation, each individual, it's all relative to them. And they're, they're all, they have to be dealt with, you know, individually that way, uh, depending on what the circumstance is. But for me, as a coach, that's always been a, um, a fun part of it is trying to solve those puzzles and trying to connect with the kids who don't just lace up the boots, go out and compete and things sort of fall into place. You know, that's, that's more the, the exception than the rule. So, you know, those guys are great to work with and, and they're fun and they need, they, they need to be tweaked and, and different things need to be added. But when you're working with the whole spectrum of kids that are extremely gifted down to kids that are more average, um, you know, your job is to try to get the most out of each and every guy. So the, in this sport, the mental side of it is a huge part of it. And, and having, and having the teaching, you have to literally, I find, have to sort of teach. You can't assume that they know how to think. You have to teach them how to think. Just like you have to sort of teach them how to practice. They don't know how to practice well. So their practices are not very efficient. They, they go through practice, but they don't practice well. So if you've got to give them a grade on, let's say, how you practice, they're just, you know, they can't become good because they don't know how to practice. Mm. So they, they put in a lot of time, but they're spinning their wheels. And it's the same thing with matches. Everybody always says, you know, like I had this discussion with a coach at, at a big tournament in, in Pennsylvania a couple summers or a couple of years ago. And he said, it's a coach. It's about matches. You know, it's, it's about matches. They wrestled nine matches. They wrestled 11 matches. What's going we need? Why not get a couple more matches? It's a, it's about matches. And from my perspective, it's not about matches because there's a saturation point. It's like running a practice is three hour practice better than an hour and a half practice. You know, what's the optimum number at some point too much is no good. So what is that point? And it's, and it's the same thing. It's like a, having a teachable moment when you're coaching a kid in a match, there's teachable moments. The same thing is true in practice. There's going to be a point where they're, they're, they're done. They're baked out and the practice is no longer, it's counterproductive. It's someone's going to get injured. Someone's going to get hurt. They're too tired. They're not focused. Uh, they're not getting the benefit out of it that they need to because you've overdone it. So um, I think that's a concept that a lot of coaches uh, generalize and they think that always more, you know, more is better. You know, if we're going to do 50 pushups then 500 pushups must be better. Why not do 10 pushups and put weight on your back, you know, or, or 10 pull-ups with weight on your back instead of let's do 300 pull-ups with no weight on our back, you know, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't, it, that you can get into that argument, but that's something that I see in, in, in talking to people that uh, philosophically, sometimes 
I don't understand. Um, it, more is not always, in my opinion, more is not always better. You know. Yeah. No, and I, I was, I was glad you hit on the match piece of it because a lot of, a lot of parents listen to the show and they'll say, Hey, how many matches should my kid be doing? And obviously it's super dependent on the kid, but um, just in general, I think to your point, it, there's a point of limiting return on, on some of the match counts that we're seeing now. I, I agree. I, I think it's all about, for me, it's about where you're going to get the most return on your investment of time. So you have to weigh it out and you have to ask yourself that question. There are times when um, going to a certain event is going is gonna, to, the events are not there to see the, the problem is if you say to us, say to an athlete or to a parent, why are you going to this event? They're going to say, I'm going to the event to win. I'm going to compete. I want to wrestle good guys. I'm going to get better. But they don't really go to the event with a purpose. They don't understand how the event fits into the bigger picture of things. They don't understand the process of getting good. So they don't understand that this event is a tool. It's a, it's a, it's a mechanism for us to measure where we are in time right now against this field of competition. And we find out where we are, and then we come back and we assess what we need to do, what we did well, what we didn't do well, what adjustments we need to make, what changes we need to make. And then we go back out and we, we, we apply those changes, those fixes, and then we go back out and we measure ourselves again. And we see if we succeeded. Did we correct these mistakes? Did we, are we no longer make, having those problems? Or are we still having those problems? But the event becomes a tool. It's, it's, it's nothing more than an instrument it's a, it, to measure where we are in time and to get advice from our opponents as to what we need to work on and not work on whether we win or don't win. Sure. We like to win, you know, but we, the, the biggest thing is what's the return on the, in, the time. So if we go to the event, are we going to take five steps forward from that event? Like, what are we going to gain from it? How, how is that going to get us better? So it's all about continuous growth and continuing to improve. So if, if a kid go, if it's random and you just go to the event and you wrestle and the event's over and there's no reflection, you don't think about what just took place. You don't, you don't think about, I, you know, I just wrestled this tournament and this is what occurred. I wrestled this guy, I did that. I wrestled that guy, I did this. And these are what things that happened. All you care about is I got a medal. I took third. I beat some pretty good kids. I lost to some good kids and I can't wait to get out there the next time and go again. The, you're not maximizing the opportunity for growth. You know, so as in, in a, in a, in my case, like I'm working with kids over time, I know that the time, although it seems like it's a lot of time, it's not a lot of time. So because I don't have them 24 seven every day of the week, I have them several days a week. I have to keep on moving the needle forward. I have to keep on getting better. And as like I said, it, I have to hit those, those milestones, those markers. Mm -hmm. Am I, is he where he needs to be at this age? Does he show he doesn't have to be winning, but he has to show developmentally that he has these underlying skill sets so that when I when I send a, a Zach Tonelli to Wisconsin, when I send a Dave Esposito to Lehigh and they've never won the state tournament in New Jersey, yet they get to the NSA finals or Zach didn't make the finals. But he he certainly, you know, he beat the guy who won and had a chance to to win. Had he not gotten injured, I think he would have done a little bit, gone a little better than he did and i'm biased of course but <laughs> i can say that he won't say that but you know he certainly had a shot right he was ranked number one at one point i think he had a chance to win it all right the bottom line is how do you go from being you know pat santoro who never won he wasn't one of my guys but i know pat never won right in high school and but 
coaches would think you got to take, I'm taking a chance on that kid because he, 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 is he broken? Is he something wrong with him? Why didn't he win? Why couldn't he get it done? You know, they'd rather go with the Mike Gray who wins four times or the, you know, the Donnie Fritzlaff who wins three times or, or the, the kid from whatever state that wins yeah. multiple times, you know? So the, you, for me as a coach, I have to, I'm trying to say, no, Dave Esposito is as good as any other state champion from any other state out that's out there. And he can go with the big boys. He can do it, you know, and he proved, he proved it to be right. And I believe the same thing with, with Zach Tonelli and any of the guys that I trained that they, it's, to me, it's not about, I use like Jordan Burroughs as an example. He's a one-time New Jersey state champion, right? Yeah. But what you're measuring is their ceiling. You're trying to look at their ceiling and, 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 and say, well, what is their ceiling? What is their potential? It's not, you know, it's not about where he is at that fa- at that moment in time. He, as a high schooler, he was able to win one state title. And that's, that's a, in New Jersey, that's a pretty good feat, you know, but, but he had the potential to, to do what he did, you know, at the world and international level, which is, you know, his potential was through the roof. So as a coach, if you can look at an athlete and say, well, all right, this guy's a one-timer, but he's got a huge upside, you know, um, I think that's something, you know, that, 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 that you're, that they look for Bruce Bumgartner came down when he was the head coach at Edinburgh and he was recruiting guys. And he said to me, tell, he knew that they were all doing a lot coming to me because they're coming to me after they already go to high school practice. And then they're coming to me afterwards and it's their second workout of the night. So he's saying to myself, who here is not doing a lot, who here is new and hasn't been doing this much because he was, he was looking to recruit somebody who had the potential to do more, who wasn't already maxed out and doing everything that he could do under the sun. He was looking for the growth. He was looking for somebody that still had um, untapped potential that wasn't already doing everything that he could possibly do, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's what like um, sometimes people fail to see in athletes is that, okay, he only won States once or he took second or he took third, but there was a unique set of circumstances um, that led to this, uh, him being at third or second or first or whatever. And that it doesn't necessarily mean it's indicative of, of what his ceiling is or where he can, what he can be. You know, there's all kinds of things that enter into, um, why kids end up, you know, there's all kinds of backstories as sure. to why kids end up where they are. You know, you don't know the stories. Well, you talk about, you know, a, a segue for a topic I was dying to ask you about, you know, Sean Bormet, people on this podcast have heard me talk about him, Tom Blue in the face, one-time state champ from Illinois in the 80s, goes to Michigan, four-time all I think a four-time All-American, loses to Pat Smith in the finals, and then goes on to coach Wisconsin. He's coaching the great Donnie Pritzloff, or maybe he's recruiting him. He comes out to see you, and he goes, holy smokes, Chicago's a hotbed. We should do this in Chicago. And he creates the overtime school of wrestling, and like I said earlier, I, I graduated high school in 07. That was during the prime. And it was a deadly combination of, of wrestlers oh, and coaches. Well, absolutely. I mean, you, people talk about the edges impact by looking at all the All-Americans and champs you've had. I think you look at the edges impact as the overtime school. I mean, what do you remember from Sean coming out and kind of seeing that program blossom? Well, I remember his, I remember his eyes lighting up and I remember him saying just that. And he says, would you mind if I flew back out here and we sat down and I talked to you? where I picked your brain on, um, you know, about how I could do this over there. And at the time I, I, I wasn't sure whether he was, um, serious or not, but I had at that time in those early years, 
I had a lot of people who would sort of come to look and 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 wanted to see what was going on. So um, I was used to that. Um, but most of the time, those conversations never led to anything. In his case, he took it to the next level. He went and got like, the, I think the second story of a firehouse in Illinois and he started and then he got somebody to back him and he, he ended up getting a nicer facility. And literally he changed the, he changed the face of wrestling um, beyond a shadow of a doubt in, in the state of Illinois and beyond that, in that whole area um, and put them on the map, if you ask, in, in my opinion, right? But I, I said to him, I, I told him, I said, this is what's going to happen when you go and, and you start this program because somebody of his stature, of his ability, um, because it just, it just doesn't happen. You, you know, you have to be talented and he's, and you know, everybody knows he's extremely talented. So um, he opens a place, you got the right guy and then you got the, you, in the right setting where you're surrounded by other uh, major universities that have access to it. So he has collegiate athletes there. He's got high school athletes there. He's got young kids there and the thing just blossoms and takes off and and he's producing you know stud after stud um i said to him you know you're going to have a one heck of a run and then after that people are going to take notice on what you're doing and everybody and their uncle is going to want to hang out a shingle and do the same thing all right and you're going to you're going to lose your guys they're going to siphon off some of your guys and what happened to me in new jersey is going to be what happens to you in illinois sure enough 10 years later he calls me he literally calls me and says ernie you were dead right he says, what you said was going to happen 10 years ago is exactly what's happening. And he said to me, I can't, I can't, um, this is becoming unbelievable. It's very difficult to um, continue doing what I'm doing the way I want to do it uh, under these circumstances. And you, at some point you become, you, you then have to spend a lot of time just trying to educate the public um, and compete for um, market share and do things that in the past you weren't formally having to do. And it, it, uh, it, you know, I don't know, like people, you can debate whether New Jersey is a better state now for having all the, all the clubs. Is it, is it better or is it worse? Is the quality higher? Is it lower? You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. The, I think that's debatable, but I, uh, I know that I know I've been, you know, I, I am where he was yeah. and um, I can relate to it a hundred percent. I knew it was going to happen. And it's, it's as a, it's frustrating as a coach, um, what I think me and him are similar in that regard that when um, you think you have a formula and you think you have something figured out and then um, you know you you lose control of the other variables and there's nothing that you can do you just can't you just can't control every you just can't control all those other influences and those pieces and in today's world with the social media and everything else that goes on there's so much involved in it that um that that it just becomes a it's you're no longer just a pure coach, you know, and if, if your love is for coaching and just doing that, and it's not about everything else uh, that goes into it, it takes that, it takes the joy out of doing what you're doing. It makes it, it just makes it very, very difficult, you know? Yeah. You become like a a talent scout almost. And uh, yeah, I mean, and that's interesting. I've I've heard you say that before now. I was glad you hit on that because um, one, it just, you know, you got to see a sense of pride in seeing how your system and your advice help change the landscape of wrestling in Illinois. And you look at all those Fargo titles, you know, we're very proud of those. A lot of that starts during that, that era, you know, Absolutely. early two thousands and it's like yep. still going, but, um, but yeah, now there's no overtime school wrestling and it's, it's crazy to see that because at the time they were so good. Um, and I just thought it's so cool that he came I, out I, and 
I think for some people, I think it's hard to understand. And I, I'm not going to put words in his mouth and say this, but I, 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 you know, I think for, for many coaches, you know, they, when they look at people that are in my position or who do what I do or have done over the years, they don't understand that. At least, and, and I can't say this is true about everybody, but in, in my situation, it's never been about a transactional relationship. You're paying me for a service and I'm going to do a job. Um, the kids, you know, I heard uh, either was either Tom or Terry Brands in an interview once talking about uh, they were asking him a question about cornering somebody and his and, and, and who was in the corner. And he got a, he you know, it was interesting in how he answered it. But I, I absolutely loved what he said. He, he simply said, in, in my opinion, you know, when you when you're at Iowa when you corner somebody, you're cornered them for life. You know, they're in your corner for you're in their corner for life. Love that. And that's that's how it is. That's how I want it to be. Right. That's how I want it to be at, at, at the edge. And that's the kid, the people who have come through my program who are edge guys. Um, you're in their corner for life, you know, so it, it's it's a different it's about the relationships. It's not about it's not about. Uh, in exchange of money. I didn't go through the McDonald's drive through and ask for a hamburger and they give me one hamburger. You asked me for one double egg and I teach you one double egg. <laughs> you know, that's, but people will think that that's what it is. I want an hour of your time for a service. Can you teach me to do a single leg? And that's not the, that's not the nature of the sport. And that's not what makes kids good. I, I think that Sean is, is probably wired similar to me in that, in that he put his heart into what he did there and he built one heck of a program. And, um, when you can't do it that way and and um you have to contend with all these other influences and things that are going around you it takes the joy out of doing what you're doing right because you're not doing it because uh, you you know you're doing it because you love the coach and you love to work with kids and 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 the relationship that you've developed in, in working with your athletes and i think that's what a lot of people misunderstand when they look at programs like mine the club programs where there's a, a money involved and people are paying to go do a service. Does that mean that they're not services out there where people who are, who have started similar programs um, or, or structured in a similar way are, are not uh, primarily in a transactional relationship? No, I, I'm, I'm sure those places exist, you know, but that's not why I got into it. That's not why I continue to do what I do. Um, you know, and, and I'm going to go out the way that I came in. So it's, 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 it's not about, it's not about trying to get rich and make a dollar. It, you know, it's about touching, it's about the lives that you've touched and the impact that you've had and the relationship that you've developed over time. At least, at least for me, that's, that's what's, in, that's, that's the reward. You know? Which it shows because all the guys who have had on, they all talk about you that way. And, you know, I think, I think a lot of coaches who've had those impacts are going to weddings, you know, they're still in business with these people are still talking right. to them. And that's obviously what you're doing. And, and coach, you've been so generous with your time. We'll just wind down with one more question. I heard this on the flow film and I wanted to go deeper because I thought it was hilarious. You're an artist in your spare or a uh, spare time. I don't know if you consider yourself that, but you painted this mural at one of the old facilities. Tell us this story and like how long you spent painting it. Cause I, Oh my gosh, I spent hours, hours and hours painting it. Uh, it was a, I think it was an old Cliff Keen shirt that was uh you know two wrestlers head to head like in a collar tie tied up the traditional type of pose and uh i transposed it onto the wall and it, and it was like uh had maybe six eight feet high and by six or eight feet wide and i literally took the time to you know paint every little detail of the fibers of the singlet and the shoes and the laces and everything and 
what I didn't realize is, you know, I didn't, I wasn't smart enough to be thinking that back then, back then in the, in the old days, believe it or not, we, you know, we didn't have wall padding and whether the wall was made out of sheetrock or whether the wall was made out of cinder block, um, we were going to have practice and it, it, it didn't matter. Um, it wasn't about, you know, thinking about like, I wasn't, I was young and dumb and not thinking about liability and God forbid somebody gets hurt or we smashed or, you know, they smash into the wall or so on. And, um, sure enough, you know, I, I spent hours and I don't know how many hours, but I mean, literally hours and hours and hours painting this thing. And I was very proud of it. And, uh, it was on sheetrock wall. Like multiple weekends, you think, or multiple? Oh, forget it. Weeks. I mean, yeah, I, I actually got some help from people. And what I did was because I didn't trust them sort of with my painting, I did color by number. And I said, okay, this is the color. I'm going to draw a little number inside each square or inside each space. And and if you see this as like number two, that means that's black or I put black. And then they just had to stay within the lines and color it black. It was such a big project. And I, I took a lot of pride <laughs> in it. And, and then... Uh, I'm pretty sure Steve Mako was the one who went through the wall, but he, he was a big little kid and um, somebody's butt went through it or their knee or their elbow went through the sheetrock A sheetrock would crack in between two of, the, two of the wall studs and the thing was fractured and broken and a chunk of it was removed. And I didn't have the, um, the heart to repair it, not at that facility. And then later I moved to another place and they had uh, cinder block walls and I re I reconstructed it. But uh, this time it was on cinder block and there was no way it was going to break. So I wasn't worried about putting the time into uh, to redo it. You know, what were you feeling when you saw Steve Mako go crashing through it? Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't, <laughs> it was I don't that bad, that. huh? Yeah, it was pretty bad. It was just a lot of heartache because I took pride in my uh, the art. It was like a, ther a therapy thing for me to get me to relax and something I could get lost in sort of doing where there's no no intensity involved. And to put in all that time and energy and work into that place. And that was the first place it was the original edge. So I was very sort of proud of it. And uh, it had a little bit of a fighter feel to it, like an old, like Philadelphia boxing gym or something. Um, but it, by the same token, uh, it was a place that I, all those guys called home. And um, I think everybody who, would, who came out of that room, you know, and there were some great guys that came out of that room in those years, they were all proud to be, have been part of that and part of that history. But when he broke that wall, uh, he broke my heart. And I was there was no way I was rebuilding it again. It was, that was that, that was it. So that is hysterical. I love that story. And I also love that one of the most badass wrestling coaches also is also an artist. That's a that's a cool thing that I don't know how many wrestling coaches can can claim that. So well, I wish I had more time to do that. Maybe someday in the future I'll have a little more time than I have now and I can I can kick back and maybe I'll do some wrestling art. That'd be nice. Well, we'll definitely take a mural in the podcast studio. It'd be an honor to have uh, Ernie Monaco in here swiping the paintbrush. <laughs> well, uh, Coach, it's been an honor to have you on. I wish we could go for hours. I'm so grateful for all your insight and just uh, just your candor today. We always sign down with how did wrestling change your life, and you've coached a lot of guys. You know who we all like to talk about the the champs, the legends, mm -hmm. but there's also a lot of guys that we don't even know about who you've had imp an impact in their life. I read an article about a guy who was homeless, who used to wrestle for you in the early nineties was, a, I mean, wrestling legend went homeless. Now he's successful. I've heard you coach Navy seals. So when you think about the guys who aren't the household names, you know, what are some of the lessons they take with them? That's unique to wrestling. I think it, I think it parallels life. I think it, I, I think part of as a coach, part of what I set out to do, is I, I learned that the I couldn't stay in this business because the losses were too tough 
and the ups and the downs. And that um, if you don't sort of prepare yourself, you see too many grown men walking around and they're, they're unable to handle, um, you know, I, the best they ever did was second or the best they ever did was third, whether it was the States or whether it was nationals, it doesn't matter. Everybody is who, co whoever comes up a little short carries that with them. And my mission has been to try to get people to, to not have that hang up where they walk around and carry that baggage, but take the lessons that they learn from wrestling um, and, and use them to be successful in other walks of life, whether it's in business, whether it's in medicine, whether it's, you know, in their academics or whatever they go on to do just in being a better person and being a, a, a better man or nowadays a better woman doesn't matter. But I think the, 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 um, the competition, the ups and the downs, the challenges that you face as an individual, whether it's from making weight to, and all the discipline that's required to the, to the processes of, of winning and losing and, and the hours and hours that go into training. I think those things prepare you for the, uh, you know, the ups and downs and the punches in the gut that life's going to give you. And they, they give you the skill set that you can cope, get back up, get back in there and, um, continue to compete, continue to do the best that you can. And for me, when, when I'm, when I'm in working with the athletes that I work with, that's the, that's the biggest thing that I'm trying to teach. Cause I'm very well aware that the majority of kids are never going to be those, those one percenters and those NCAA champions in the, the Shane Griffiths of the world. But, but for everybody, you want them to be able to take away um, something that a value that they can have with them for the rest of their life. That's going to make them a better person. And I think, you know, wrestling probably better than any other sport provides that opportunity to do that as a coach and as an as an athlete it it gives you that um that vehicle to do that to reach these kids awesome coach thank you so much for your time it's been an honor same here thank you very much for having me hey guys this episode is brought to you by spartan combat they're hosting two tournaments in june if you're in new york check out brawl at the falls going down Saturday, June 18th. And if you're in Alabama, check out Rocket City Rumble going down June 30th through July 2nd. Go to SpartanCombat.com to register.